I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. More than half of the United States is now seeing an increase in coronavirus cases, and in places like Kansas, Louisiana, and Maine, officials are halting reopening plans and instead reimposing restrictions. It's part of what Dr. Anthony Fauci called a disturbing surge of COVID-19 infections. We were going down from 30,000 to 25 to 20, and now we sort of stayed about flat, and now we're going up. A couple of days ago, there were 30,000 new infections. That's very troublesome to me. Fauci testified today before the House Energy and Commerce Committee that the next few weeks would be critical to contain the surge in cases in states like Florida, Texas and Arizona, where President Trump is hosting a rally at Dream City Church in Phoenix over the objection of the mayor, who said the event ran counter to coronavirus policies in the city. Fauci was asked about the president's claim during a Saturday campaign rally that he asked officials to slow testing to show fewer cases. To my knowledge, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. That just is a fact. In fact, we will be doing more testing. The admiral in charge of coordinating the nation's coronavirus testing, Brett Giroir, told Congresswoman Diana DeGette, no one in the administration has mandated or suggested less testing. Do you think that it's a good or a bad idea to do less testing so it will look like fewer cases my purpose my my purpose in leading is to increase the number of testing the only way that we will be able to understand who has the disease who is infected and can pass it and to do appropriate contact tracing is to test appropriately, smartly, and as many people as we can. We're joined now by Dr. Jay Bott, a practicing internist, formerly of the American Hospital Association, now an ABC News contributor. Dr. Fauci spoke today of both a disturbing surge and a mixed bag, because in some states the infection rate has been brought quite low. Is that about where we are? I think we're still in the storm. Uh, I think that we're still in wave one. I think that the states that have had uh, strong measures around distancing, stay-at-home orders, messages have gone through to the public around the impact of masks and other preventive measures, they're uh, doing better. And the places where that hasn't happened, it seems there is a rise in cases. I would say that on the clinical side, we're seeing people less sick uh, than before, which is partly related to, I think, our ability to understand how to manage this virus clinically more effectively. Is that because hospitals are just less busy and can deal with the cases better as they come in? Hospitals are more adept at how to manage surge, how to manage the clinical presentation of the illness. So one example is the whole issue around ventilation. We were putting people on mechanical ventilation earlier in the pandemic, and now we're saying using high-flow oxygen, keeping people off the ventilator is actually going to help them be successful in having a better outcome. But that still doesn't stop the issue of spread. You know, I think that super spreaders still are there. The asymptomatic cases range from 25 to 50%. And we're still having testing challenges. I mean, it is just absurd that we are not testing at the level we need to. It also seems, according to a number of states where the cases are increasing, that they're among younger people. Does that also account for the fewer number of deaths? That's interesting, Aaron. I think that uh, I would say that there is a multi-factored set of causes to this issue. I don't think it's one thing or another. You know, we've seen situations where younger people get sick quickly and die earlier in the pandemic. Um, we're seeing where younger people get really sick and, and have a good outcome. Part of it is 
that we may be, again, seeing that we're better at managing this disease and that the younger people that don't have chronic illness or autoimmune challenges are doing better. But I think the younger people are getting exposed at higher rates in some of these states because of just behavior and messaging that they may not have paid attention to around masking, distancing, hand hygiene. For the second time in less than a week, the president is going to a state where cases are increasing and where local authorities have urged him not to hold the events that he's holding. Is this a good idea? Terrible idea. Uh, The president can help set an example for the country and the people of the country by practicing the preventive measures we know that work. Distancing, not drawing crowds, masking. I think that this is just uh, a recipe for more cases in an already challenged state. And that has implications, you know, for so many different stakeholders, for hospitals, for healthcare workers on the front line, for families. We saw uh, the potential for impact in Oklahoma, and we're not going to really know what the impact of that was uh, for another seven to 10 days. You know, we're seeing actually really wonderful news coming from places where there is leadership, there's coordination, a doubling down on the actions and behaviors we know work. There's a lot to learn also from from those experiences for the states that are experiencing some of these rises in cases now. One of those states, Dr. Bott, that shut down early and appears to be in relatively good shape now is Ohio. There has, over the last two weeks, been a slight increase in coronavirus cases, but hospitalizations and deaths have decreased. We're joined now by the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine. Governor, what do these numbers tell you? Well, I think we've been in a pretty good shape, uh, but we are seeing, starting to see some spikes uh, in southwest Ohio. So the, the Dayton area, the Cincinnati area, we're, we're concerned about that. We're increasing testing uh, as, as we have to and we really want to. So we're really pushing to increase testing uh, in our nursing homes, our, our congregate living, but also just in, in the general public. I mean, we've taken off any restrictions on testing, trying to encourage people, particularly in southwest Ohio, to just go get a test. The other thing we just continue to uh, talk to people in the state about is the importance of distancing and the importance of wearing masks. Uh, you know, we are not through this. Uh, we've got uh, a ways to go. We've got to learn to live with this. And the way we live with it is is to be careful. You haven't picked up on any efforts from the federal government to slow down testing or, or the reporting of testing? No, I was on a call uh, yesterday with the vice president and uh, just the opposite. Uh, we had a long discussion about testing, uh, and everyone the vice president had on there for the administration was encouraging more testing. You were among the, the, the first governors in the country to really shut down your state. Do you feel vindicated now, given what's happening in other states? Well, I don't think this is, a, you know, any anytime you can feel vindicated, we've lost a lot of people. Uh, we still are having a lot of people get get sick. So, uh, but you know, w- we made a decision early on because, frankly, we were faced with the decision. We had the Arnold Classic, which brings about sixty thousand people uh, from eighty different countries to, uh, including eighty different countries to Columbus, Ohio. We looked at that and said, "This makes no sense. We cannot do this, even though it's a huge economic boon to Columbus." And so, we were really, I think, the first. State to 
shut down a big event and uh, we allowed the competition, but but not spectators. And and that was you know that was based on medical advice. That was based on public health advice. And it certainly was the, was the right decision. It, it, it you know people questioned us at the time. It looked kind of a little premature or a lot premature, I think, to people at the time. But it was certainly, in hindsight, the right decision. Why are the cases going up, as you mentioned, in the Dayton area and, and in other parts of the state? Well, we've opened the economy. I think as you open the economy, you know, there's more opportunity for people to go out. But it's better. It's weather. It's summer. If you look at our driving statistics, uh, we're probably only 5 to 10% down now in driving. We're at one point, we were 50% down in driving. Uh, if you look at the data from uh, you know the cell phone companies, Ohioans are, are pretty much back to where they were when this virus started as far as movement. You know, what my message to Ohioans continues to be that, yes, we can do this. We can bring the economy back. But the only way we can really do it is if we stay safe. More people have to wear masks. We don't have to have everybody wear a mask in public. But if we had 80 percent of people going into stores uh, wearing masks, that would help a lot. We've got to learn to live with it. And we've got to you know, look at this as, as the new normal until there's a vaccine or until there's some other major breakthrough. We're going to have to live with this for the next year or, 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 or whatever. And we can do that, but we've got to take those precautions that we, that medical science clearly indicates to us, will make a big, big difference. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine joining us from Columbus. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. Doc, good to be here with you. Everybody's looking for a vaccine or some kind of treatment. Now we're talking copper. This is getting a lot of buzz, uh, TJ, because people are talking about the potential antiviral properties of copper. So let's tell you what we know right now and do a little bit of a deep dive on it. First, some historical perspective. Ancient Egyptians used copper to sanitize water. Um, they found it very effective for that. And as we've learned more and more, we've seen that there are antimicrobial properties with copper. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that actually SARS-CoV-2, this coronavirus, can only survive a few hours on copper when it can survive a couple of days on stainless steel. So there is some scientific mechanism at play here. Okay, scientific mechanism. So what are the real theories? Talk about ancient Egyptians there, but is there some real <laughs> science behind this? There, there is. And what we think so far is that there might be two mechanisms at play in terms of how copper may work um, against viruses. Number one, because of the um, ions in copper as a metal, it can interfere with viral protein function. The virus can't function well if its proteins aren't functional. And copper can actually perforate or poke little holes in the exterior cell membrane of the virus once that happens, obviously, the virus is weakened and potentially destroyed. So there is a mechanism there that could explain the attention being put on copper right but now. But there are some uh, some products out there that are promising. We can help you. OK, you're shaking the head already. All <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> the products are all over the place okay. and the science is not there yet. So let me tell you what we don't know. At this point, it is unknown exactly how effective copper could be against SARS-CoV-2. We don't know what role copper could potentially have in PPE or non-medical equipment. That's obviously an area of intense research and development. And we don't know what percentage of copper is necessary to have these antiviral properties. You could buy a mask that says it's one percent copper, but is that going to do anything? or do you need 99% copper? At this time, I can't emphasize enough, 
this is not ready for prime time <laughs> as a major tool against SARS-CoV-2. But folks are looking at it because we're looking at just about anything we can That's at correct. this point. So we will stay on top of it. All right, Dr. Ashton, thank you. you She'll be here, of course, with us the entire hour. We need to turn now to businesses. They continue to reopen across the country. Dozens of states reporting a rise, though, in positive COVID-19 cases. Austin, Texas is among the top five metro areas with the fastest growing cases in the whole country. Here to tell us more about what's happening there is the mayor of that great city, Steve Adler. Thank you so much, Mr. Mayor, for being here. And your governor there in Texas said it's unacceptable, the rising cases. We have seen many metrics double there in Texas over the past month. So in your particular town, just how bad is it? You know, we're real concerned here uh, because we're seeing those same kind of metrics, the infectivity percentage going up. So even though we're giving more tests uh, as a percentage, we're getting more positive hits. The, the, the number of people hospitalized is going up pretty dramatically. The number of new cases are going up pretty dramatically. Uh, so we're real concerned here. We've opened up the economy and, and too many people are treating this as if the virus was over. And that's not the case. Okay, you said the numbers are going up, but you've also opened up. What are you going to do about the numbers? Well, the governor has opened up the the, the state, uh, and we're trying to to do our best to keep the numbers down while that happens. I think more than anything else, the behavior we need people to adopt is wearing the the masks and the face coverings. Um, People in the community here are getting conflicting messages on that, certainly from the from the national leaders that, that seem to suggest that it's not important. And here at the state, the governor continues to say it's important, but for the longest time we were unable to enforce it. Uh, we're now back in that game. Uh, and just sending the message that it's mandatory, which we're able to do now, is changing behaviors on the streets. And, and we hope that behaviors will change this trajectory that we're on. You said behavior on the street. When you walk the streets of your town, give me an idea. Most people, some people, not a lot of people wearing masks. You know, a, uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago, when it was enforced, I had more and more people wearing masks. Last week, very few people wearing masks. Now that we've made it mandatory again, working through businesses, not through uh, individuals, uh, I'm seeing the practice become adopted a lot more. Uh, and it needs to. Uh, we now have our Chamber of Commerce uh, engaged on behalf of businesses with a, with a campaign in the city. You know, we know what works. We know that if you shut things down, you can stop the virus. We also know people don't want to sustain that. If we're going to open things up, we need people to show the discipline to wear masks. Okay, you, you, they have to show discipline because the point here is that you can't enforce it. Anybody walking on that street right now cannot be fined, right, that you can't do anything to enforce it necessarily. You spoke about some of the businesses. So are you trusting, do you trust right now your people in the town to do the right thing. You know, this is gut check time in, mm. in the community. Uh, people are going to have to decide what we do as a community. There are not enough police officers or code enforcement people to make sure that everybody does this. Either we, we want to do this as a community or we don't. Uh, the community really rallied together when we shut down. We had to stay at home. Uh, we're going to need the community to, to rally again. Uh, campaign started yesterday talking about Austin as the city of us. Uh, and, and that's what it's going to take. This community is going to have to look inside and decide what's important. If they want to keep opening up the economy, then you're going to have to wear masks. What do you think about the possibility of a second shutdown? You know, if, 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 if this trajectory continues unabated, uh, I don't know how we end up anywhere but there. 
which is why we need people to impact that trajectory, to realize that that trajectory takes us to that place. And even our governor uh, said yesterday that if he sees another doubling of these uh, indicators in the next month, uh, then he's going to have to take urgent action. I love that change in tone in my governor, because as I look at the trajectory right now, it's not going to take us another month to double again. Uh, that could happen in the next week or two. Uh, so, so we're trying to get that message out as widely as we can so that our community recognizes that it's up to them if they want to keep this economy open. All right, Mayor Adler, we are certainly rooting for you and communities all over the country. But Texas right now seems to be in the thick of it. So, folks, listen to your mayor. Keep those masks on. And well, listen to the mayor and your doctors, of course, but keep those masks on. Mayor Adler in the great city of Austin. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for the invite on. I got the eye of now with the Spotlights on our young change makers. Meet the nine-year-old powerhouse personifying Black Girl Magic. So my name is Savannah Kevin Edwards, and I am nine years old, and my family and I are United States diplomats. We currently live in Germany, and I am a human rights activist and philanthropist. I wanted to take action to eliminate barriers for as many girls around the world as I can. I started a book club from the choir, and I read a study by Scholastic that said black kids have 37 less books at home than the white kids. So I wanted to make up the difference by raising money to give each of them 37 books. Black lives matter, but black books matter too. And I want to make sure that every kid sees them sees themselves represented in the books they read. Gun violence has affected my family. From coast to coast today, students staged walkouts, once again calling on Congress to create tougher gun laws. I chose to walk out because I wanted to honor the kids who were shot and killed, as well as my cousin Tony, who was shot and killed when he was 17. I was proud of myself because I knew I was standing up for what's right. So for Girls Have Rights, I am the executive director. We provide the necessary resources for girls to have an equal access to an education. So like books, um, technology, water, feminine hygiene, um, language training. My reaction to George Floyd's death, I was confused because how could the man not listen when George Floyd said he could not breathe. I have been taking action here in Germany by making an art installation in my neighborhood. I have also been attending protests and marches. If I can change one group to do everything that I'm doing, then they can, they can change one group and then they can change another group. So it just keeps going. Your voice is your power but it all starts with an education and a book. My nonprofit can make a change in the world because black girl magic is changing the world. Let us see a little black girl magic up next right here. When we come back, we'll check in with our Dr. Jen Ashton again. She's answering your coronavirus questions. Also, courting a triumph over COVID. The USTA says game on when it comes to this year's U.S. Open. How they hope to pull it off safely. Stay here. Dr. Ashton here 
with us, going to be answering your questions about COVID-19. So let's get started. Question one, any data that shows certain blood types reacting better or worse to a COVID-19 infection? So there actually have been a couple of published reports uh, that came out of China. One early on, just based on observation, TJ, that actually people with type A blood were more likely to become infected and seriously ill with COVID-19. People with type O blood less likely to be infected. It may be associated also with the severity of disease. Now, here's the take home. You've heard me say this before. Don't do a test in medicine unless you know what you're going to do with the results of that test. (laughs) We can't change our blood type, right? So you have to ask the question, how might we use this information? This is part of genetic testing that's being done on blood of COVID patients. And it's been discovered that these genes that code for the the type of our blood, the surface um, blood type, is actually really closely located to the immune function response genes. So there may be some (laughs) connection there. It needs ongoing study, but right now it is just an observation. Okay, another question here. I never would have really thought about this. Hand sanitizer. If you leave it in your hot car, will it become less effective? According to experts, the answer is no, because it needs to reach a temperature of 600 to 700 degrees Fahrenheit to become combustible. So we're hoping that a car, even on the hottest day um, in Arizona, is not reaching that temperature. (laughs) Of course, it's better to leave these alcohol-based hand sanitizers in cool, dry environments. But if you're out and it's in your car for an hour, a short period of time, all indications are that it will still be effective. Okay, that was a lot we talked about. Here's the next question, question three. It was a lot of concern about pets. So what is the latest we have now on COVID-19 transmission and our pets? So many people concerned about their uh, canine and feline home uh, (laughs) friends and relatives. (laughs) There is no significant increase in the documented cases of house pets right now in the U.S. having more uh, confirmed diagnoses of COVID-19. The thinking is that the pets are getting it from us, not giving it to us. So that's important. And we also need to realize and remember that this strain of coronavirus, this strain is different. And the thinking is that it originated in bats, jumped to an intermediate host animal, and then went to humans. But other strains of coronavirus affect dogs, affect cats. So we shouldn't be that surprised when we see this uh, detected in pets. Okay, one last one here, the age. What is the youngest age that children should wear masks? According to the CDC, not on children under the age of two. Um, However, when you talk about toddlers and over the age of two, this is something that's going to require a lot of effort and work on the part of parents. It's going to require practice. They're going to need to be role models, lead by example, put it on the dolls, put it on the toys, color (laughs) it on the the, um, storybook characters. Um, And they're definitely going to need encouragement, especially to explain it and frame it properly, that this is for the protection of other people it's about we, not me. And they're never too young to start learning And that. these things are going to be around for a while. We're going to be a mask society for quite a while. It right? looks that way. All right. Dr. Ashton, thank you, you as always. You can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on our Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Uh, we turn now to some alarming news. We're getting out of the world of sports. Novak Djokovic, the men's world number one tennis player, has now tested positive for COVID-19. This news comes just a week after New York Governor Andrew Cuomo gave the all-clear for the U.S. Open to be held in New York. Joining us now, USTA Chief Executive of Professional Tennis and U.S. Open Tournament Director, Stacey Allister. Thank you so much for being here. And what is your reaction? The number one in the world has now tested positive. TJ, I must say it's with a heavy heart um, that we learned the news that Novak and, and yesterday... 
um, other athletes uh, involved in the Adria Tour. Uh, we certainly watched over the last 10 days or so with concern as to how they were uh, returning to play. Uh, and I think really uh, what it does uh, for all of us today at the USDA validates uh, the months of work that we put into the development um, of our plan uh, that is uh, deep uh, with medical experts and uh, rigor about how um, how we go about returning to work. You know, uh, uh, the athletes work as a tennis court and uh, the, uh, the plan as approved by Governor Cuomo, uh, built by leading uh, medical doctors. Um, it's, it's all about mitigating risk. And, um, you know, only way to do this is uh, with a clear health and safety plan. Do you have to proceed this year, given where we are? Mm-hmm. Um, do you, why do you have to put the terminal? I know they want to get back to playing, but just given where we are. And also the question is, is this about money? What is the financial impact sure. if you do not put on the U.S. Open this year? We sort of uh, embarked upon the journey with three fundamental principles. The first one was, can we stage the U.S. Open and our Western and Southern Open? That's the event that usually is played in Cincinnati in a, a centralized model like the other leagues are considering and uh, do it in a way that mitigates risk and uh, provides this healthy and safe environment for all. That is, has been the lens all the way through eight, nine, 10 different models. Uh, once we sort of established that plan, it then was the second one. Is this in the best interest of tennis? And look, we, that could be subjective. Uh, our lens was the fans uh, really want to come, uh, uh, the athletes to come back. It's part of our society. It is a, an industry. Is it good for the tennis economy? A lot of people went back to work on Wednesday when we announced. And, and ultimately, uh, it's a good opportunity for us uh, to be able to promote the sport on the basis, TJ, that <laughs> it's safe. And so what we know today, we have that confidence. And at the end of the day, uh, we, had, we did make a decision at the end of the principle, is it financially viable? And uh, although uh, there is significant impact on the USDA, it's a national sport governing body. Um, it still is financially viable, not on a sustainable basis, to proceed with a US Open without fans on site. But at the moment, right now, where we are, uh, the management of the virus in uh, New York and the surrounding states, uh, where everyone has it under control at the lowest state, and we feel very confident uh, with the plan as supported by the governor, governor and um, and our medical advisors, that we can proceed. Well, Stacey Allister, I think a lot of sports fans, certainly tennis fans, uh, hope you can pull this off. Uh, so good luck yeah. to you. And I want to say congratulations to you as well. Uh, tournament director, the first woman to be tournament director of the U.S. Open in its 140-year history. So congratulations to you on that and good luck. Thank you, T.J. As protesters continue to fill the streets calling for a national crackdown on racial profiling and excessive use of force by police. And while some people are pushing for better police training, others argue that simply is not the answer. Here now to discuss is retired NYPD detective and professor of law at New York Law School, Kirk Burkhalter. Sir, thank you so much for being here. And so much emphasis is being put on training. 
but you also hear there needs to be more education. It seems like they should go hand in hand, but what is the difference we're talking about in training a police officer versus educating one? When we talk about training, most often we think about teaching someone to respond to a very specific set of stimuli. If you think about sports, when the ball comes to the left, you step to the left. <laughs> education focuses more on providing information and knowledge that promotes reflection and more effective decision-making. So while training is effective in certain forms of police work, aspects of police work rather, such as firearms training and tactics and so forth, the decision-making aspect should be based on education. How long, in your opinion, should a police officer, should a person be trained before they are given a gun and put out on the streets to police? So for several reasons, I would envision that that training should last at least two years. Uh, under its current iteration, most police academies, police training programs last anywhere from five to six months, sometimes seven months. However, when we talk about the education factor alone, I would uh, recommend that police officers or potential police officers take courses in psychology, interpersonal psychology, small group psychology, sociology, anthropology, world history, American history, dispute resolution, negotiation, counseling and interviewing and so forth. If you think about that curriculum, it would take quite some time in order to master it. And further, during this period, you could have the officers go out onto the street and perform patrol functions, bring them back into the academy, have them reflect on their interactions. And also it provides a much longer evaluation period. So you can imagine if we were able to evaluate all these officers over a two-month period, given this going out and evaluating the performance, coming back in, evaluating how well they are, uh, how responsive they are to education, I think we would see a very different police department. Well, well Kirk, help, help me understand. If I want to be a police officer here in New York State, I have six months of training. If I want to be a barber in New York State, I need a year. Where did we get to this point? And are we at finally at a point where that is going to shift? But how do we get to this point where it seems that so it seems wild to think that so little training is necessary before you're a police officer? It would seem to me that we got to this point because the educational aspect of police work has not really progressed into the 21st century. And this is not to get down on cops. They're doing the best they can. However, we need to provide them with the tools in order to uh, service society. So the same, my father was a police officer. He became a, a police officer in 1962. Uh, I became a police officer in the mid 80s. And our training was rather similar. And I would suspect that the training that police officers receive today is still somewhat similar. So this hasn't progressed. So there are other aspects of society, as you mentioned, becoming a barber. Someone realized, hey, if we want to have folks out here cutting hair, providing a service, they need a certain level of training. However, somehow police departments haven't progressed in the same fashion. So this needs to be moved forward into the 21st century. Pretty much I would recommend throwing out the book wow. and starting over. This training should be akin to an undergraduate degree in some form of police science. And some will argue, obviously, that it doesn't matter how much training, how much education that wasn't going to stop what we saw in that video out of Minneapolis. What can you do about something like that? Well, that's an excellent question. First, I think that what we see going on uh, in law enforcement is a reflection of society. 
Um, this has held up a large mirror to American society, and many of us are uncomfortable with what we see. So, you know, all the training and education in the world is not going to change someone's heart and mind. However, if we spend two years and engage in this long process of education and evaluation, I do believe that we are more likely to catch those folks who are probably not suitable for this profession. And I think that's the key here. However, we'll never really move forward in, with society and as far as law enforcement is concerned until we start to think more about rights and equal rights. Further, with regards to the education slash training aspects, um, when police officers come into the academy, learning about constitutional law, having an understanding of the Bill of Rights, an understanding of what it means that every individual has certain individual rights that are granted to them under the Constitution, I think that would be wildly helpful also. Well, maybe this is the time, uh, Professor, to, like you say, throw the book out. Uh, we appreciate you, Professor Kirk Borkhalter. Good to see you. My pleasure. Well, books, of course, play such a key role in children's learning, growth, and development. And as schools across the country were forced to close during the pandemic, many are worried how their kids' academic progress is going to be affected. Our next guest is a mom who's taking matters into her own hands to help improve literacy for children in Cleveland's inner cities by providing free books to those in need. And join us now, joining us now, founder of Literacy in the Hood, Krishandra Matthews, Krishandra, good to see you. Explain the name and the mission, Literacy in the Hood. Literacy in the Hood. Hood stands for helping out our disenfranchised. And our mission is for parents to create a space in the home where thinking, reading, learning, and playing are part of the culture of that home. That's what's missing today. Um, our statistics show that in the suburbs, children are going to school knowing 1,800,000 more words. But what it is, is they're reading 20 minutes a day. And if you take that 20 minutes times 365, you'll find out one million numbers. So just trying to help parents understand why they should be reading 15 to 20 minutes every day. Now, you have some numbers there, but you also have a son, a nine-year-old in the house. So tell me how he and how you being a mom to a nine-year-old boy impacted uh, you in having this mission in the first place. Well, Derek started reading at three. And me living in the inner city because that was the rent that I can afford, I began to notice that my zip code had a lot to do with what resources were available. And if you give me just two seconds, what I mean is I lived in the zip code that surrounded a suburb. Mm. And what I noticed that the suburban part of the district, because of their tax dollars, they have more resources than the lower part of the district, although we shared that same zip code. So I would find myself driving there to the suburbs to find literacy and reading programs that would be avid for a three-year-old. He's often engaged with you uh, in your mission. Why is that important for you? Um, one, um, understanding the school to prison pipeline and how important it is to teach my uh, black son the importance of reading. Two, I know if I could teach him to read, then he can conquer the world. Three, he needs to have a sense of give back. So it's nice that you start reading at three, but a lot of these children that we serve, they can't read. So now they can see a young boy that looks like them, but then they can have something that they can admire or look forward to doing themselves, such as reading at a young age. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you. I hope we get to catch up again. And remember, no Corona summer slide, okay? Corona, they was out for TJ. They were out for uh, the time for the Corona. Yeah. It really added up to the whole quarter. 
plus the summer. So we want to make sure they're reading for 15 to 20 minutes so we don't create the Corona summer slide. Okay? Whatever you say, I will follow along, Krishandra. It is so good to see you. Thank you so, so, so much. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks for covering that community. And we appreciate reporters such as you. Thank you so much for that. It's good to see you. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.